I know buenos dias and I know buenos noches. <laughs> I don't know. Afternoon. <laughs> Good afternoon. Hello. I'm Savannah. <laughs> I'm Alicia. <laughs> Welcome to Burden of Proof. So what you got for us today? Today I have a pretty recent development mm. case. Um, the boy in the box. Oh yeah, I did recently see this. So America. I don't know a lot about it though. Yeah. So well, I'm excited. Buckle up. All right. Um, America's unknown child was actually recently identified, and so we'll cover that at the end. I'm gonna go through it as we've known it for 60 years now, and then touch on the identification. And um, those of you who know the case know that it's not something that's been the actual crime hasn't been solved. So right. we don't have a trial. So for us, I chose to use this case to highlight some laws that I'm really passionate about and I think are kind of relevant to this situation. Okay. Maybe not, but depends on who you ask. <laughs> okay. I wanted to talk about them and I found a way. All right. <laughs> so, Sounds good. Um, and plus it just happened and so it's pretty recent and fresh yeah. on everybody's mind. So, All right. Get in your time machine. All right. Back all the way to February 25th, 1957. All right. A young man was out in a field in Susquehanna Road in Fox Chase, Philadelphia. He was out running through this empty lot or like a dump lot, checking his muskrat traps when he stumbled upon a strange sight. There's a box, a cardboard box, with one end open. Maybe two ends open. I don't know. I only saw one angle in the picture. Okay. Inside, he saw a plaid blanket. Of course, this wasn't just any plaid blanket. This blanket held the body of a small boy. Mm-hmm. The young man, who was just out trying to catch some muskrats, panicked. Yeah. And, yeah. And he didn't report the body. He was worried that the cops were going to take away his muskrat traps. Oh, no. Which, like, some people were like, why did he report it? I, he's panicking. And a kid. Like, how yeah. old was he? We don't I really mean- know. You get different reports. I think it was like a young boy based off of the things that I've heard, but some sources say it was a man. I don't know. You know, I've been around true crime and law enough to know if I find a body that I'm going to call the cops. Uh, Yeah. But I totally understand when people find bodies and they like, uh. I don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. So he ran away. So I know what your question is. Your very first question. What is a muskrat? (laughs) And the answer is this. <laughs> I was going to say, well, no. <laughs> but well, that was my question. The answer is a muskrat is a weird old guinea pig looking man. But it's not a man. <laughs> it's a rodent. Anyway, just to lighten the mood it's before we get into yes. dead babies. I knew it was a rodent. I couldn't remember yeah. exactly what they look like. but Yeah, neither could I. But I, I had to know. So I'll post it. It'll be the last thing in the slideshow of pictures because <laughs> it's not relevant. but. Anyway, a few days later, a college student was driving nearby when he spotted a rabbit running through the same lot, and he knew that there were lots of animal traps in the area, so he got out to presumably go save the rabbit. Maybe he was going to go get it if it got in a trap. I'm not sure. But instead, he stumbled upon the box. Yes. He was nervous to be around police at all, but the next day, he heard about the death of a young girl named Mary Jane Barker. And this case inspired him to go tell the police about the box that he had found. Mary Jane Barker was a four-year-old girl who had gone missing in New Jersey the same day on February 25th. Or maybe it was a few days before and she she was found on the 25th. Excuse me. 
and she was playing with a friend and their dog, and she was missing. After a massive search, she was actually found dead in a closet of a vacant home nearby three days later. Mm-hmm. The dog lived, but the unfortunate truth is that Mary had died of exposure and starvation because she couldn't get the closet doors open. Just an accident. Aww. But she was the same age as around the small child that he had found in the box, and he decided he was going to go to the police with what he found. Also, the case of Mary Jane Barker also pushed for legislation to make sure that closet doors are easily opened from the inside. So that was pretty cool. Nice. The police go to investigate. And they discovered a naked body of a around a four-year-old boy wrapped in a plaid blanket inside of a cardboard box. The cardboard box was from a bassinet sold at JCPenney, which is where I had my first job at high school. And I really loved working there. Side note. She really does. I did. Yeah. You've, you've mentioned that many times. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I really liked my job at JCPenney. I liked the, my managers no, and I, my friends yeah. there. Anyway. I always thought that the bassinet box was like this horrible, morbid irony um, because that's where a baby sleeps and not a child's final resting place. It's really, really sad for me. As they looked closer, the body had tons of wounds and interesting little tidbits. The boy's hair had been recently cropped pretty close to the scalp, possibly after death because some of the hair still clung to parts of the body. There were Mm -hmm. signs of severe malnourishment as well as surgical scars on the ankle and groin and an L-shaped scar under his chin. It's believed that blunt force trauma to the head is actually his cause of death, but it was interesting. Yeah, that's a lot of surgeries for a four-year-old kid. Yeah, and it may not have all been surgeries, but they looked like they could have been surgical scars, so they were hoping it would lead to some sort of... Yeah, that's true. They took his fingerprints, and at first they were incredibly optimistic about finding this child and understanding the whole bizarre situation. In fact, though, this is the beginning of an over 66-year mystery. They had an artist come up with a picture of what the boy should have looked like and began spreading the word. The Philadelphia Inquirer printed 400,000 flyers, and they went everywhere they could, and they included it in every single gas bill in the area. So... This flyer was in every home in Philadelphia. Yeah. It reminded me of like an early days Amber Alert. Yeah. So. Also, side note, if you're just ignoring Amber Alerts, stop. Click them. Look at the picture. It makes you stop being annoyed at this thing that just stopped your phone and stopped you scrolling on Instagram and realize that, okay, this is a human child that's missing. Let's pay attention. At least look at where the county is. Like, see if it's near you. You got to. Yeah. Open those Amber Alerts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, lecture over. (laughs) Your public service announcement. Yes. I'll get off my soapbox. Our public service announcement for a public service announcement. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. In the meantime, investigators combed the crime scene. Let me rephrase. With giant combs? Yes. Like space balls? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Let me rephrase. The team of investigators and over 270 recruits and police academy students combed the scene over and over and over again. They found the following. A man's blue corduroy cap, like the little Mm -hmm. caps, you know, Mm -hmm. the ones that go right on your head. (laughs) A child's scarf. Okay. A white, a man's white handkerchief with the letter G in the corner. Okay. None of this goes anywhere. 
Well, my first thought is it's not likely that the kid was actually killed there in the field. Yeah. And you're on a field by a road that obviously multiple people just like randomly go into this field. So anything you do find may or may not be related. Exactly. I mean, yes, you should follow up on it all, but not surprising that it didn't go anywhere because it could have just been the man's cap flew off. He was driving a convertible and it flew off and blew into the field or whatever. So, you know, nothing's coming up with their flyers. Nothing's coming up from the crime scene. I mean, people were obviously coming in with tips and thinking, oh, this might be this person. It might be this person. But nothing was panning out. It was they did not find him. And someone thought, well, maybe no one's identifying him because the likeness isn't good enough of this picture. Okay. Maybe they need to see what he would have looked like alive, which he kind of did. The likeness kind of did look like him alive. But they then proceeded to kind of prop up his body and dress him and photograph him as if he was alive. Mm. you've probably seen these pictures if you've looked yeah i think i Um, have i haven't decided if we're gonna post it yet because it's kind of meh um but we'll post some similar stuff so like you'll you'll see yeah we'll also have the artist rendering which i actually think is quite good i don't think that this was necessary but they were trying everything that they could so props to them i think that with the likeness the artist drawing if you knew of a missing four-year-old boy and you saw that you would have recognized him for sure Right. You know. So they also left his body in the morgue and then let people come in to try and identify him in person if they like really thought that it might be a match. And people from over 10 different states came in. Wow. Um, And no one was successful. The American Medical Association sent out a description of the boy. Obviously, it helped bring in tips and leads, but none of it really came up to anything. Yeah. They took fingerprints and footprints of the boy and compared them to hospital and medical records. But there was no record of the boy even existing. So, I mean, I don't know the, obviously, I, I'm i not that old, but <laughs> <laughs> no, my mom was a child at that time. But I just know that, you know, records and, like, taking kids to school, like, I, I know for a fact in many states, there were still, even in the 1950s, there were kids missing school, like, they didn't go to school and yeah. nobody, there wasn't like truancy officers going, we know you have a child in there. Why aren't they in school? Yeah. So, yeah, unfortunately, it it's really sad to think like people could have children and they wouldn't know. Nobody really knew. Like they see you with a kid and then you could just make up an excuse yeah. <laughs> as to why your kid's missing. And yeah, so Okay, remember me saying that it was a bassinet box from a JCPenney? Yes. So they actually discovered it that. Was JCPenney, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. <laughs> Keep their name out of your mouth. <laughs> no, I love JCPenney. It's where I did all my baby pictures. Yeah, yeah. The JCPenney photo, whatever, yeah. photo studios. Photo studios. They actually found out that it was this bassinet box from a JCPenney because it was just plain on the outside. It didn't say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the inside, there was a serial number that they could track. And so they tra- right. they traced it all the way back to a shipment that was leaving from AJC Penny 15 miles away. Okay. Perfect, they thought. Where did all of these boxes get shipped out to? Because they're leaving the store. Where are they going? They can kind of narrow it down a little bit. The store had actually shipped out 12 of these boxes. All of them paid in cash, leaving no record. Yeah. Which obviously makes sense. This was 1957. 
JC yeah, Penny, everybody used cash. Everybody used cash. <laughs> yeah. JC Penny did start having lines of credit in the next year, 1958. Uh, so a lot of people are like, they have credit. No, not yet. Not yet. Be patient. Yeah. So it would have been more common to just use cash. Now, eight of these 12 purchasers did come forward and say, hey, we heard you're looking for these boxes. They either all ate, had the box still or had put it out for garbage collection. They're like, we got rid of that. It's a box. So Yeah. But they were able to narrow down the area that the truck was going to Upper Darby, which is north of Philadelphia. Okay. So they had kind of a narrower area. They tried to do a similar tactic on the blanket, but there aren't serial numbers on blankets. Yeah. So. It's so weird to listen to crimes back then because you have to like keep, I don't, maybe, maybe not everybody does this, but you do have to keep reminding yourself of how limited they yeah. really were compared to today. There's no DNA. There's no lines of credit or receipt trails. Yeah. There's no, like I said, people's children could have very easily gone missing and they could just be like, oh, well, I sent them to, m-. it wasn't uncommon to send your kids to live with family members if for a variety of reasons. Yeah. If he had a single mom or misbehaved or whatever. So they were very limited on their options. Another lead that they had was into the hat that they found in the field. And it was from a small business in South Philadelphia. So they went into this small business because they interviewed like a ton of places that sold this kind of style of hat. Yeah. Um, And they found out that it was from a store who was run by a Mrs. Robbins. And she was able to remember this specific hat. Oh, wow. Because she had done some extra work on it. He had asked for like a leather buckle to be added so that he could adjust it. She said that he was a blonde man somewhere in his 30s. He paid cash and he never came back. He only bought the one thing. Go Uh, small business owners. Yes, exactly. Perk of a small business. We now know that somebody in his 30s had a hat that was in this field. There you go. Where a body was found. Wow. We still have no idea if it's related, though. No, no idea. (laughs) And then one last thing that I thought was really interesting about the investigation of this case, because... That's a lot of work that they've gone through. Yeah. Trying to find this boy. And let me tell you what, spoiler alert, they never stop looking. Yeah. Like, even if they put the case down for a little bit because they had other things to focus on, it was never. Right. They never forgot. They have always been trying and there's always been people working on it. And part of that is because they enlisted the help of something called the Vidoc Society. I'm going to be butchering that name. It's French. Okay. It's a members-only exclusive crime-solving club in Philadelphia. What? Yes. What? Yes. Does it still exist today? Yes. Shut up. They're the ones giving him a new headstone. (gasps) That's amazing. Okay. I spent like an hour and a half on their website, which it's not that big a website. I was just, (laughs) I kept going back and forth. I was like, this is so cool. So it's named for Eugene Francois Bidoc. I'm definitely saying that wrong. (laughs) who was a groundbreaking 19th century French private detective. He helped police by using psychology of the criminal to solve cold case homicides. I love it. What in the fiction? This is Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) He was a former criminal himself, so he could get into the minds of the criminals. Shut up. 
I love it. Yes. He created the private detective agency. He is also considered to be the father of modern criminology for numerous inventions. For example, the ink that you can like hold a candle under. Oh, yeah. And see it? Yeah. And unadulterable, unalterable bond paper. I don't know what that is, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Okay. And he did major advances for undercover work, ballistics, a record-keeping system for all of their discoveries. Wow. Um, he was the first ever to, like, use plaster on shoe prints. What? Which was groundbreaking because then otherwise they would yeah. have just lost them. Yep. So basically at meetings of this society, law enforcement officials from around the world present cold cases for their review. Members are forensic professionals such as FBI profilers, homicide investigators, scientists, psychologists, prosecutors, coroners, anybody who might have any insights on cases that may have gone cold. Nice. They cap the membership at 82 people, one for each year of their founder's life. The society itself was actually formed by William Fleischer, but it was inspired by... Right. Yeah. So it was actually formed in the 90s. But it solved its first case in 1991, clearing a man who was thought to be involved with the murder of Huey Cox in Little Rock, Arkansas. And they have been heavily involved with um, the boy in the box. Right. Some law enforcement agencies are, like, a little bit angry about this whole Isn't thing. Isn't that always the case? They're, like... They're not efficient. They're not really cops. They're not. This is their job. Step off. This is cool. Okay. But this happened in 1957, and this society didn't start till 91? 90. 90? Yeah. So you had nearly 40 years. Yeah. You had over 30 years to figure this out, and you didn't. Exactly. So the society will only consider cases that meet a few requirements. They have to be unsolved cases. They have to be more than two years old, which is, I think, the requirement for it to be considered a cold case or something. I think something like that, yeah. Yeah. And it has to be presented to them by the appropriate law enforcement agency. So whoever's jurisdiction it is has to come and say, we need help. Please help us. Right. So they have to be wanted on the case, which is really fascinating to me. And I think it's so interesting how often, and we're going to talk about this again in a little bit, how often that law enforcement agencies actually do ask for outside help. Yes. It's left less often than it probably should be, but more often than you think. Yeah. So we've got a boy. He's in a box. He's malnourished. Got a lot of weird injuries. And that's it. Yep. The box is from JCPenney. I mean, where are you supposed to go from here? Maybe it was someone from Sears trying to set up somebody from JCPenney. You're on to something because Sears, not as good. (laughs) Why are you selling fridges? (laughs) It's okay. JCPenney did like all kinds of weird stuff. Through the years. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. So I have, I think I have three theories to go through with you. One of them I am more partial to. The other ones I'm like, meh. So the first theory I'm going to get into is not one that I'm super solid on, mm-hmm. but it's really prevalent to the lore surrounding this case. It's kind of part of what made it a really famous case other than it just not being solved. Gotcha. Okay. Basically, this is the idea that the victim wasn't identified because he was actually being raised as a girl. Oh. So anybody who would have known him wouldn't have known him. They would have known a girl. Yeah. Okay. 
forensic this is all because a forensic artist named frank bender um thought that the child's unprofessional haircut and the fact that there were still hairs on the body mm-hmm. may have been because he was a girl and so he drew her or he drew the kid okay. as a girl yeah we know because the, the child was naked that he was a boy right but, and then two writers from a couple different places have like written to make this a little bit more believable over the years okay yeah then there's a theory from Jim Hoffman and Louis or Louise Romano that they thought they had discovered a potential identity from Memphis, Tennessee. It was actually discovered by a Philadelphia man who knew the authors, and they presented it to um, the Philadelphia Police Department and the Vidoc Society um, in early 2013. And by December, they had they been trying to obtain DNA from the family that they thought this kid was related to. Yeah. But they said they would need to do more research um, on the circumstances surrounding the link from this child to who they thought it was. They basically were like, you don't have enough evidence. And I couldn't even find enough on this without reading their book about it, which I just didn't have time to do. Yeah. um, To know what it was all about. There was no connection found, essentially, in the long run. Gotcha. So that was the second theory. I guess I have four. <laughs> All right. Because that one's not really fleshed out, but I didn't. I did feel like because they are so big when you Google like theories on this case, those two names gotcha. pop up a lot. Did want to mention that they thought they had found the identity and a connection, but it didn't go anywhere. Gotcha. So my second actual solid theory is the foster home theory. Yeah. This comes from a man named Remington Bristow. He was a medical examiner on the case, and he investigated this case on his own with dodgy detective work for over 30 years. Wow. Yeah, buckle up. He was very thorough in his research. He traveled across the country for leads, including to, like, Arkansas and Texas, and he even consulted with a psychic who held staples from the box. Okay. Okay. Again, this is where I was going to talk about how fascinating it is to me that, like, a lot of times they go to psychics. Yeah. Now, this isn't a cop, but yeah, it happens quite a bit. So just to speak to Remington's, let's say, obsession, infatuation with the case. Yeah, I would say if it's not your job and you're doing this for 30 years, yeah. it's... He would carry in his briefcase a mask of the boy's face what what yeah oh i think to kind of when he was talking with people be like do you know this boy oh but i'm like did he put the mask on and why a mask i don't know like pictures pictures will do yeah you'd think but i guess he didn't think the picture would be good enough just envisioning dwight yes exactly (laughs) it's exactly like that yes Wait, let me put it on. <laughs> Do you know this boy now? <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, the psychic, which, by the way, I would love to do a case that a psychic helps solve. I think that would be really fun Ooh, to do. That would. Um, the psychic led him to a foster family that was located about a mile and a half away from where the body was found. I don't know why. This, this picture is funny to me. They were having a yard sale one day. And so he just strolled on up and did some looking. Like the real detective that he is. All right. 
and he discovered that they had a similar bassinet and similar blankets on the clothesline. Oh, boy. Yes. So, we know from our field of law that sometimes the family drama is very important. Yes. Yeah. Very. (laughs) So, in this foster home, the parents were a man and a woman that he had married. Um, I'm not going to say their names because these, this family has not been proven to be connected and right. I am airing all their dirty laundry, so you could find it. It's available, <laughs> but I'm not going to say it. There's not a really pretty way to say this, but the wife was the man's stepdaughter. Oh. So. So. It's did, just, did it, Ma. I don't did, know. We don't know. You don't know if she died nope. or if she. No idea. Okay. So the theory kind of gets a little messy on timeline as to when the boy would have been born. But the theory is that the boy belonged to the wife slash stepdaughter situation and that they had either killed him on purpose or accidentally killed him and then disposed of the body. Mm. Um, See, there's a lot of holes in the story because part of half the people who talk about this theory say that, oh, well, they killed him because... She had him before they were married, and they didn't want people to know, and she was an unwed mother, and it okay. wasn't necessarily the the husband's child. We don't know, but there's just a lot of, like, ifs, ands, or buts. Yeah. Right? But it this lead was actually investigated by actual detectives later on and the Vidoc Society. Police Lieutenant Tom Augustine in... I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Please don't kill me. In 1998... <laughs> picked up this investigation from Remington, who was not really supposed to be investigating. Right. And several members of the society went and interviewed the foster home, and it was closed. It wasn't part of it. So I trust the Vidoc Society. If they say they didn't do it, they probably didn't do it. Again, it's a bassinet for Casey Penny. Well, yeah, you can't prove anything. Ah, you have that bassinet. Ah, yes, the same one. You must have used I mean, the box to hide a child. Literally, the murderer might have been driving by and picked up a box exactly. off of somebody's curb. Exactly. So. It could be from a dumpster. Yeah. Who knows? All right. Any questions? I don't think so. Okay. So we're moving into the last final theory. This is the one that kind of resonates with me. Okay. Okay. This is, it is a bit out there. It's a bit. More like true crimey. Okay. And not like an accidental death, which a lot of people think it was accidental. I, I don't. Mean, he was it malnourished. Could be, but yeah, he's malnourished. That's not a great sign. And then this this makes sense to me. So this is called the woman named the woman named Martha theory. All the theories have kind of like little names anyway. Okay. In two thousand two, a woman named Martha, or sometimes just called M, came to police and told them her story. She does have a history of mental illness, so they were a little bit troubled, but Martha claimed that her abusive mother had, quote unquote, purchased an unknown boy who they called Jonathan from his birth parents in the summer of 1954. Subsequently, the boy was subjected to extreme abuse, physical, emotional, sexual abuse for two and a half years. One evening when they were eating dinner, the boy threw up what they had given him for dinner was baked beans. And so he threw that up and was given a severe beating because of that. 
where his head was slammed against the floor until he was, like, incoherent and unconscious. They gave him a bath, during which he died. Now, these details do match information known only to the police. They knew that his last meal had been baked beans. Ah. They knew that he was clean. He had clearly been washed. Gotcha. And his fingers were water-wrinkled when they found his body. Ah. So, Martha said that her mother cut his long hair, because apparently his hair had been kept long, and in an e- they did that in an effort to conceal who he was. And then she forced Martha to assist her in dumping the body on Fox Chase, well, in the Fox Chase area. Yes. There was a male witness in 1957 who corroborated the testimony of Martha by saying that the box was actually already in the field and they just used it when they were dumping her. He came forward and said, yeah, that box was already there. There wasn't a body in it before. Hmm. Yes. So they weren't able to verify her story. Neighbors who say they had access to Martha's house at the time said that there was no young boy living there and they called her ridiculous but early days into the investigation police were looking into a man who had allegedly sold his son they were tipped off by a potential landlord and we don't know how he found out but somehow he came to the police and said i was interviewing this guy or i was showing him a house and he said something about selling his son oh my gosh so so it's kind of hard not to piece that together and how would this lady like so the details about like baked beans and certain things that was not released to the public no it was not so how she wouldn't have known yeah so because they couldn't confirm or deny because they still don't know the boy's identity yeah and martha has a history of mental illness which Clearly, if this was true, she would have a history of mental illness. Like, this, this is, what... is the house she grew up in. Yeah. yeah. So nothing really came of it, unfortunately. I mean, what are they going to do? It's hard. You don't have well, and enough. Her... And she was also a victim. Other, I mean. So how many years later did she come forward? 2002? 2002. So by that time, her mother, who supposedly was committed she was this, yeah. she was dead. Yeah. So there's, you can't really, yeah. So. I mean, at that point, the only thing you are trying to find is who was the family that sold the boy? Like, who is this boy? So. Yeah. A sad situation all around. It is. So eventually, the boy was buried and he was left with the headstone, America's Unknown Child. And he was unknown. Until. December 8th. 2022 just a few weeks from the time that this episode is being recorded (laughs) (laughs) here we are a month in fact exactly a month you are correct basically the body was exhumed pretty sure more than once over the last 60 years probably yeah and in 2019 the body was exhumed for more dna and forensic evidence because they have not stopped looking yeah it's crazy to me that they still kept looking something about this boy like they were fascinated by it but that's just the thing is most of the time you can 
figure out at least, even if you can't f- figure out the whole crime or who committed it, you at least know who the victim is. Exactly. Especially a child. Yeah. Or you know something else that would, like, I'm just thinking about Carla at Homolka when they found the two girls. They did know their identity, but then they were like, okay, so they're connected. Yeah. You know something. There's nothing here. Yeah. And they tried really hard. Yeah. It wasn't half-assed in any way. They did everything they could. They tracked the freaking boxes back to JCPenney. Yeah. But luckily, the child was publicly identified on December 8th, 2022 as four-year-old Joseph Augustus Zarelli, born on January 13th, 1953. Apparently, genealogists had uncovered his name in like October 2021, but they were waiting on a second cousin once removed to upload DNA to the database mm-hmm. so that they could confirm for sure the full lineage and they could absolutely positively say, right, this is him. So they were waiting, 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 and that after that second cousin once removed, put that thing in there. Game over. We know who it is. Wow. So Mr. Zarelli may have sold his child. <laughs> Well, that's, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know if it's the same guy. Okay. So investigators encouraged the second cousin once removed's mother, which was a first cousin of Zarelli, okay. of, of Joseph, mm-hmm. to submitted, submit a genetic profile to GED Match, which she did. Obviously, somebody calls you and says, um, I think you're the first cousin of the boy in the box. <laughs> Could you like spit in this tube for me? I'd be like, yeah, I can spit in a tube for you. Yeah. That's my reaction. (laughs) (laughs) And then a court order for the child's birth certificate was made because obviously they didn't know. Yeah. Both of his biological parents were deceased, but he has living half-siblings. So that's kind of cool. Okay. They now say that they have ID'd him and that they are going to keep their theories and suspects about what happened to Joseph close to the chest for now. Yes. But they think they know. All right. I plan on doing like a little mini update. I just didn't know how long we were going to have to wait for them to do it. And I really wanted to cover this case because of a few reasons. Number one, it's pro- it's prevalent right now. Everybody's talking about it. I like to cover things when it's happening so that, you know, you're aware and you don't have to be like, I heard about that, but I'm not sure what happened. No, yeah. you know. Second. Um, I wanted to highlight all of the work that that the Philadelphia Police Department has been doing over the years to keep up with this case. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. And talk about the Vidoc Society, which is so cool. Because I originally started researching this just on my own because it's an unsolved case and we typically don't do those. We did one. We didn't like it. I, you know, don't love it. But I thought that the Vidoc Society was so cool and I wanted to talk about it. And then third... This case reminds me of some laws that I really love and I wanted to bring attention to them. And so normally when we don't have a ton of legal stuff, we do a little legal lesson. Yeah. So this is my legal lesson. Legal lesson. Legal lesson. I want to talk a little bit about the safe haven laws in the U.S. So it's not a new law. It started in 1999 in Texas. Um, but a lot of people have been talking about it on social media recently because they're they're making some upgrades. So Gotcha. It varies state to state, but the safe haven laws allow for anonymous relinquishment of any newborn or very young children without prosecution for the parent. Right. 
So it started, like I said, in Texas, 1999, and now it is in all 50 states. The District of Columbia and Puerto Rico have enacted versions of this law. It's, again, to aid mothers in crisis and to avoid any sort of abandonment or infanticide, 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 killing of an infant. Yes. I knew what you were saying. (laughs) Um, They are able to relinquish their babies or infants to a safe location and know that they will be cared for. And it's, I think, a fantastic thing that they're doing. My heart always goes to, I'm sorry, I'm trying not to cry. Don't cry. Mothers who are having really bad postpartum issues and were not in the best situation to begin with when they had the child. And so this isn't, they are no longer a safe place for their child and they need some place for it to go. It still happens. You know, people, babies are still abandoned and they're babies, so they die. 2019, 18 babies were relinquished under the safe haven law in Texas, but 15 were still a Aban- le- illegally abandoned and all of 15 of them d- passed away um Ugh. yeah so those cases in 2019 kind of stoked up a fire among people who advocate for safe haven laws and now they are coming out with these things called baby boxes or baby drawers mm-hmm. so at fire stations in some states and areas there is literally a box where you can anonymously drop off a baby and know that they're going to be taken care of and you know find a good home for i love this law is making me cry because i'm just like you know i'm just sad making sad faces mostly because well from a legal perspective i think that it may not be for every one of those cases of people who are still abandoning the babies but i question how many of them just simply do not know exactly about the laws so while I, I mean, I remember hearing about this in the early 2000s and things changing and stuff, but how many people, especially young people, mm-hmm. are really going to go, oh, I'm about to have a baby. What do I do? What do I do? And they probably really believe that their only option is abortion or I have the baby and then what do I do? And then I freak out. And so... I don't know what all the details of the laws are in every state, but I definitely think they could do a better job at advertising it so that people are aware. Social media, especially TikTok, is where I see a lot of stuff about the baby boxes and the different safe haven laws and how you would go about enacting that um, for yourself if you needed to to use it. So hopefully they're continuing to do it. But that's another reason I I absolutely agree, and that's why I wanted to talk about it. Even though it doesn't necessarily fit this case, I mean, it could. Who's to say that this well, mother couldn't he have was, kept taken care of him and yeah. he died because he was malnourished and he fell and hit his head? Well, and I honestly, you know, fought the, uh, it's a whole messy thing. It is. Like, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but like the foster system, it definitely is messy. I've known several foster families who are fantastic, who have given new life to children and it's an amazing thing it's just so unfortunate that there's also the broken part of the system where not everybody is in it for the right reasons there's not enough foster parents Mm -hmm. so you've got those people that are like well the more like they may love the kids and you know want what's 
want what's good for the kids, but unfortunately, yeah, some of them take on more kids than they really should. And so it's not, it yeah. may be slightly better than where they came from, but it's still not ideal. Yeah. And it's still not, you know, so I, yeah, I love the safe haven laws because that's crazy to me. Like you went through the pregnancy and you had the kid and now you're just going to like <laughs> risk. Yeah. You, and you don't know how they got there and it's hard. But yeah. The good thing about the safe haven laws is that any place that is you can relinquish a child at using the safe haven laws, such as a hospital, fire department, schools, some schools, like preschools will do it, I think. I even think I saw that in some states, libraries. Yeah. Do it. The people who in those areas, especially the ones that have the baby boxes, have to be trained on how to provide quality yes. care until a suitable home is found. Yes. So they are not going to be going directly into the the normal system as from what I can read. Um, okay. They go into a more secure process. Gotcha. So it's it's really a fascinating law and I think that we don't know the story behind Joseph. Maybe this could have been prevented. Yeah. Um, and I mean cuz he may have been young yeah when he was like given up or left or yeah and then entered. well and some states will allow up to that age it just depends on where you are yeah but if she had been an unwed mother and she had had a, a baby boy and she'd done her best for four years but she was struggling and she couldn't feed anybody that too yeah you know if she had realized right when he was born i'm not going to be able to do this yeah or even, you know, 72 months after he was born, I can't do this. And I and she had some place to take him. We could have been in a different situation. We don't know the story for Joseph, but I feel like, I don't know, it just made me think yeah. about it. But what I thought was interesting was the famous reason why they do the safe haven laws is it's the story of Moses. And when he put that baby in the basket on the river just to see what would happen. Um, so I thought it was interesting. That's kind of what they talk His about. Sister had to watch him. Exactly. So he didn't die. Exactly. Get eaten by alligators. Exactly. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, basically, yeah. So we're in Florida. So somebody waited to make he sure likely that he would was have okay. gotten eaten by alligators and here, put in a yeah. river here. But yeah, basically, people watched him until he was able to yeah. go back to a safe place, and that's that's the point. Yes. Um. So I was gonna read some stats. Okay. Well, just one stat. <laughs> <laughs> over a stat a stat 4687 babies over that have been relinquished under the safe haven law and are being cared for in quality foster homes wait say that number again 4687 4, okay what did i say the first time no you probably said that but oh, okay. for some reason i was thinking 400 some thousand oh, no, and i was like dang that's a lot of babies <laughs> oh, 4, holy crap 4,687 babies. I'm going to link a fantastic little study research organization thing in okay. the description about safe haven laws. And I think that working in law and especially doing crime, sometimes law gets tricky and you forget why we're here. Yeah. And um, reading about things like the safe haven law, that's why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. And why law is so important is it gives people systems to help them 
So I thought the case was fascinating, especially all of it the is. different investigations that they went through and the different theories is fun. Don't like doing unsolved cases, but I did want to bring to light that they've they've identified him. Yeah. That's awesome. And I can't wait to do a mini update when they finally release what happened to this poor child. Absolutely. I hope they do. I'm sure they will. They haven't given up yet, so I have high hopes. Never give up. Never give up. Chase those butterflies in the field. Never give up. What from? The moody one. Okay. When she was two, she would chase the butter. She Well, on more than one occasion, she would chase butterflies. But one occasion in particular, she got a little far from me in like a state park. Mm-hmm. And I started yelling, come back. <laughs> give up and, on the butterfly. And I was like, you're not going to catch it. And she's like, never give up. <laughs> that sounds about right. Well, so, thanks for joining me on this kind of a depressing episode. But yeah, but th- I mean, that's how it be. Yeah. If you like <laughs> if you like unsolved cases, it's a fan. It's a fascinating one. Yes. Because it's just like nothing. You got nothing until you- we did. So, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at Burden of Proof Pod and email us at burdenofproofpod at gmail.com.